Let's uh, turn our Bibles together. We're going to read from the book of Jonah in the Old Testament. So let's turn to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. For he paid the fare, and he went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great storm upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and what, are your, what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the heaven and the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For for the, the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray together and ask the Lord to bless our time in the study of Jonah. Father, we thank you that you are such a merciful God and that you have given to us a written revelation by which we can see and understand. And we ask that you would be gracious to us this morning, that you would show us your glory, that you would help us to see the magnificence of your character and your power, that we would be in awe of you this morning. We pray that you would bless us, that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that understand. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So this morning, we're beginning a four-week series on Jonah. Um, This week, I'll be preaching. The next week, we will have somebody visiting us from Hayden Bible Fellowship. Um, We're going to have a couple of different gentlemen that are going to be pitching in to help cover things while Josh is gone. But we're starting a four-week study on Jonah. This is now the third of the Old Testament prophets that have been covered in recent days. For those who have always wondered why do they call them minor prophets, they call them minor prophets because they were a smaller text, not because they were somehow less important than the major prophets. Major prophets were a larger text. Minor prophets were a smaller text. They're all valuable. They're all important. So Jonah is a four-chapter volume. It's small. So it's considered a minor prophet. But as short as Jonah is, being only four chapters, it's one of the most well-known prophets of the Old Testament, isn't it? Why? 
Why is Jonah so well known? Because Jonah took a short ride on a long fish, didn't he? And so we all know about Jonah. So I, for those who are old enough uh, to remember flanographs, you can picture this, uh, this uh, scene of the ocean on the board, and you can see a whale stuck on the front, and we remember those things, don't we? Um, it's, it's a story that we remember from childhood. We've all been fascinated with this for years. Everybody knows about Jonah. Even many unbelievers know, uh, who, who may know little or nothing about the Bible, they know about Jonah and the whale, don't they? they a lot of them know that story simply because of the fascination with a man being in a fish. But the book of Jonah should be, for us, more significant than a fish because of the underlying truth that God is communicating in the entirety of the four chapters. Not just because of this odd and kind of a spectacular thing right in the middle of the book. So the fish is a part of the bigger picture of this storyline, but we seem to sometimes lose sight of the forest for the trees. We home in on that one and we miss everything else around it. So this book is ultimately God communicating to us through the experience of Jonah. And I think the first six words in the book are well-placed where it says, Now the word of the Lord. And hopefully, over the next four weeks, this minor prophet will become more important to you than just a man who took a ride in a fish. But just to set the stage a bit, who is Jonah anyway? Who is Jonah? There's actually very little information about him outside of this book. Just one other reference about him in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 14 And only Jesus really mentions him in the New Testament. To help us out, let's turn to 2 Kings. If you'd mind turning to 2 Kings chapter 14. And we're going to look starting at verse 23. 2 Kings 14, verse 23. And it says, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not, uh, he did not deport, depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Debat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamat, which is far, uh, as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amate, the prophet, who was from Gat-Hephar. So this reference uh, it refers to the same Jonah that's in the book of Jonah. It is the same individual, the son of Amate. And though it's a brief little passage about him, it tells us a lot about him, actually. It tells us, first of all, that Jonah is a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel was divided. It was a divided kingdom. Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and Jonah was a prophet in the north. Incidentally, notice that he's from Gat-Hafar. This is in Galilee. Okay, this is just a few miles from Nazareth. The reason this is so significant is that later the Pharisees claim in John 7 that no prophet ever came from Galilee. They said this because they were rejecting Jesus, but they were in error. Jonah was from Galilee, a legitimate prophet of God. So additionally, Jonah lived during the reign of Jeroboam, it says, Jeroboam II. Likely this would have been the first half of the 8th century B.C., And if you remember, Pastor Josh said that in our study of these three minor prophets, they're actually in the reverse order historically. So the events of Jonah's life would actually have been the earliest time, um, and his ministry was in the northern kingdom of Israel prior to its demise in 722 B.C., likely in the early part of the 8th century. So Habakkuk, the one he just finished, 
He prophesied after the destruction of the north, so it had already taken place, and prior to the fall of Judah in the south near the end of the 7th century. Haggai, uh, which he did first, he ministered in the time during the remnant of Judah that returned from exile, likely in the first half of the 6th century. So each of these prophets served around 100 and 150 years apart from each other and served in a different setting. Jonah in the northern kingdom of Israel, Habakkuk in the south in Judah, and Haggai to a remnant of Judah who returned later on. But Jonah was a prophet during the time of Jeroboam II. And he was a king of Israel in the north, and he was just another in a long line of very wicked kings who led people into idolatry and disobedience, turned them away from God. But throughout the life of the nation, God used other nations around Israel to oppress them. And particularly at this time, it was Syria and Assyria during this time of Jonah. So the impression that God brought to them from other nations around them was intended to bring to the nation humility, brokenness, repentance before God. But unfortunately, it tended to result in an increased hardness. It was a superficial humility before God, and it, and it just continued to harden them against God. They were certainly, as the Bible says, a stiff-necked and rebellious people. But at this time, Israel is experiencing a time of prosperity and relative peace during the time of Jeroboam II. Things are actually going pretty well. But while they were prospering materialistically, they were spiritually a bankrupt people. And this wicked king was of no help at all. He was making it worse. And though their hearts were far from God, God continued to show his grace by providing protection for the people during Jeroboam's reign and the northern border of Israel at the time was reestablished. They took it back and they reinforced it and actually expanded northern Israel back to the time of David and Solomon. Things seemed to be going pretty well. And God even promised that he was going to do these things beforehand through the prophet Jonah. The word came through the prophet Jonah. This is all just a little bit of background information to help us establish the events and who this is that we're dealing with. So let's turn again to Jonah chapter 1. Let's look again starting at verse 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. So the first point that we need to home in on this morning is that Jonah held a great position of high honor. An incredible position. Just imagine for a moment what it was like to be a prophet of God in that time. Just think about the privilege that's, that's involved with that. Out of all the people in this entire world, you are put in a rare position of having intimacy with the living God. This is the God uh, of grandeur, of great understanding. This is the God of the covenants. And you have an intimacy with him, a, a greater understanding than others. You have a connection with Almighty God. And just as here in this passage, God speaks directly to you and gives you revelation and mysteries and then sends you to declare it to the rest of the world. And he gives you special missions and messages that he gives to no one else. And I can't think, guys, of a higher calling than to be enrolled as God's servant. To be called a servant of God. Referring back to 2 Kings chapter 12 again, it says, According to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant, Jonah. 
That's an incredible title. The servant of the Lord. So there were many people in the scriptures that regarded themselves, I am a servant of the Lord. They regarded themselves as a servant of the Lord in the scriptures. But this is a given title that is a special privilege bestowed upon a person by God himself. This is my servant. This is my representative. This is my person. So the patriarchs in the scriptures are actually referred to as the servants of the Lord. Moses was called the servant of the Lord. The prophets are often referred to as the servants of the Lord. Most significantly, God refers to the Messiah repeatedly as my servant. Like he says of of, uh, Jesus in the Messianic texts of Isaiah, says in 42.1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah 49.5, And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring back to him and uh, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. Isaiah 50:10 Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. And Isaiah 52, 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. Jonah sat in a long line of highly privileged individuals who were labeled by God as his servants, men who were allowed to serve the plans and purposes of God the Father. And as a servant, their purpose is to fulfill God's will, his purposes. A servant was a chosen one, set in a place of leadership and honor to carry out a divine work, a divine purpose. And think of this, Jonah's ministry, according to 2 Kings, came right on the heels, believe it or not, of Elijah and Elijah. He came directly after them. And it's likely that Jonah was even influenced by their ministry. The ministry of these two prophets, these great prophets, it's right, right at the opening of the prophetic era. I'm sure Jonah had heard of their miracles, had seen what was going on, It says, but listen to this, but Jonah rose to flee Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship to go to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah may have held a really high position of honor and enjoyed intimacy with God, but our second point this morning is Jonah rejected God. Jonah's fleeing. First of all, from the word of God, God spoke to him directly, to Jonah, the servant of the Lord. Go to Nineveh. And he fled. God's word wasn't ambiguous. wasn't difficult. It didn't get lost in translation. It's been translated so many times, we don't know really what he was saying. No, Jonah knew exactly what God was saying, and he fled. Josh recently finished Habakkuk. And if you remember, Habakkuk was none too pleased with the word of the Lord either, was he? He wasn't too excited about it. What? What are you? You're going to wipe out the nation? What, what are you talking about? Lord, I was asking you for, to, to intervene here, but this isn't what I was looking for. Okay, you have a right to judge God, but how could you use a people that are way more wicked to wipe out your covenant people? Okay, God, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to wait for an answer. Okay, that's what he did. Job had a similar problem, if you remember. He says, God, you have the right to judge, 
but I was a righteous man. Why are you doing this to me? Why is this happening? These men struggled with God's will, but they at least debated with him. They, they at least asked God questions. They wanted to understand. They asked for answers. Look at what Jonah says to God. Do you see what he says there? He says nothing. He doesn't say anything. He just leaves immediately. He just gets in a boat. He goes home, he smashes his piggy bank, he runs down to the port, and he purchases a ticket to Tarshish. He says, I'm out of here. He doesn't even ask God. He's fleeing from what God has said. But he's also fleeing from the presence of God. It tells us this twice in verse 3 for emphasis, and then later Jonah admits it to the crew that he's fleeing from the presence of God. He doesn't want to just get away from God's will. He wants to get away from God or maybe possibly get rid of God. He wants God away, gone. There's a debate over where Tarshish was actually located. Nobody really knows with 100% certainty, but some believe it may have been the southern tip of Spain, which at the time was like the end of the known world. I mean, that's about as far as you can go. Okay, Nineveh was way to the north. This was even way, way farther to the west. I mean, he, he just got in. Oh, I guess that's your east. This is my west. There you go. So he was going way west, but we don't know for certain where that was, but the main point is that he was trying to get as far away from God as he possibly could. And it's just shocking, isn't it? I mean, doesn't kind of just jolt you? How could someone with such connection with God do something so drastic and so shocking as to run from the will of God or even from God himself and just do it instantaneously without even hesitation? I had a discussion with Josh a long time ago and he made a great observation. Uh, he's pretty good at making observations and I enjoyed this one. He said, have you ever noticed that Jonah in chapter 1 here, there, there's a constant progression downward in the chapter. It says, Jonah goes down to Joppa to catch a ship. Then he goes down into the ship. And it says when the storm hits, they find him way down in the ship, sleeping. And then they pick him up and throw him overboard, and he sinks down to the bottom of the ocean, or down to the bottom of the sea. He's running from God, and the result is he continues to go down. But this behavior was not foreign in Israel either, was it? Look at how Israel continually acted toward God, rejecting him. Israel was chosen by God and was given a place of great honor on the world stage. They were given the law, the word of God, the sacrificial system, the priests and prophets, God made his presence known in the midst of these people. He delivered them. He provided for them. He protected them. And what did Israel do? Constantly grumbled against God. Didn't like what he provided. Didn't like his will. They constantly disobeyed God. They rejected God altogether and sought after gods that they made up for themselves. And as a result their society crumbles morally and spiritually, and they're finally wiped out. The nation runs from God and sinks as low as it can go. <clears throat> what Jonah did was not much different than what Israel had done. He's rather a very good representation of the nation in what he's doing. Before we look in shock and horror at the behavior of Jonah or even Israel... Should we not stop and look at ourselves for a moment? We've been made kings and priests. We've been elevated as children of God and as co-heirs with Christ. We're servants of God to the highest possible degree. And we enjoy a great place of honor and intimacy with God. But don't we often reject what God says? 
Don't we have a tendency to do that? Do you harden your heart when submitting to God or his will runs against what you want? Do we do that? I don't want to sacrifice for that person. I don't want to forgive. I don't want to submit to that authority. I don't want to give up my amusements and my ambitions for godly pursuits. I don't want these things. The list could go on endlessly. Each one is personal for you. But the bottom line is that we often reject the word of God in favor of whatever it is that serves our pride or lust. I think that happens far more than we want to admit and possibly more than we even realize. Another question, even more painful one than the last, do you ever find yourself running from God even if just in your hearts? You want to be your own God, be captain of your own ship, go and do what you want and fail to see the glory and the blessedness of belonging to God or being his servant. And it's easy to see the failures in others, especially if it's written out in the scriptures. We don't know for sure who wrote the book of Jonah. Many speculate Jonah. Some say it's written in the third person. Well, many of the, the writings of the Old Testament were written in the third person by that one person. So we don't know for sure. But if he is, he's, a, he's opening his closet and exposing himself. He's showing all his dirty laundry for the world to see. But it's easy for us to look at the scriptures and critique this guy, say, boy, yeah, he wasn't he a rotten egg. But it's much more difficult for us to see these attitudes in ourselves, daily even. And unfortunately, it's in the heart of every fallen man to run from God and the word of God, wanting to have nothing to do with him, wanting him out of the picture. And I think we have this real tendency to do that when it goes up against what we want. But turning back to Jonah, let's look at one of the motivations behind Jonah's actions, not to justify him, mind you. I'm not justifying his action, but I want you to understand the man. Where was Nineveh? Nineveh at the time was right in the heart of the Assyrian nation. So Nineveh was one of the greatest and most powerful cities at the time. It was a strong representation of the Assyrian people. And who are the Assyrian people? They were an evil people, wicked and idolatrous. They were horrible. And their lust for conquest and wealth drove them to the most horrific practices. They didn't just conquer those who resisted them. They tortured and killed everyone, burned everyone. And then whatever was left, they took it with them. I won't give you details, but I looked up some history on the Assyrians and the things that they did to civilizations when they conquered them was really nasty, gross. It was horrible, horrifying. These were awful people. The message that they, the Assyrians wanted to leave to everybody because of this behavior was that um, you better not resist us or this is what will happen to you. You submit to us. You pay tribute to us. Some historians say that the Assyrians created the first professional army and it was a powerful one. The Assyrians put fear in the hearts of everyone around them and they were a dreaded enemy of Israel. Think of it. God had never sent out one of his prophets to minister to Gentiles. You look, and this is the only time. This, God usually sent his prophets to his covenant people, not to a Gentile nation. Jonah is suddenly an exception. To make matters worse, God is telling him to go to the Assyrians, this violent and pagan enemy of Israel. There's a lot of talk about prejudice and discrimination today, but in this era, there was the strongest possible discrimination you can imagine between people groups. Back then, people had very strong cultural and religious barriers that were just not crossed. 
particularly when it came to an enemy that would simply march in and kill everyone without hesitation or remorse if they had the opportunity to do so. Imagine this illustration. Imagine asking a Jew during World War II to go to Germany and warn them of judgment. Imagine having to do that. But isn't that just what we spoke about last week in Luke chapter 6? Josh preached from Luke chapter 6. Jesus said, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. We're all enemies of God. We like to think that we're a pretty good Joe. But in reality, we're enemies of God. We are diametrically opposed to him. But God directly commanded Jonah to go because Jonah was to be a representation of God's grace. And Jonah refused it. Jonah's failure was that he was driven by his fear of earthly things instead of putting his faith in the power of God, the power of the God who was sending him. God loved his enemies and wanted Jonah to do the same, but he refused. Jonah likely thought himself superior to this pagan enemy and found the idea repulsive of going to them. Hey, I'm of the covenant people. God likes me pretty good. I'm a pretty good guy, but these guys are enemies of God. Not even recognizing that Israel had been acting as an enemy of God for a very long time. In fact, all of humanity is an enemy of God. Perhaps he was afraid of the Assyrians, that they could kill him. Maybe he was afraid of what would happen when he came home, that they, everybody would be upset that he went to the Assyrians. Whatever was going on in his head at the time, he ran. He tried to get away from God and his word. But where do you go? Where do you go from God? David asked this question in Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will hold me. Jonah must have known these words. He knew he could not hide. You can't hide from God, but he still tried. He still tried to do it because that's where his heart was. That's where his heart was. There was no discussion. There was just running. So first we looked at Jonah's honorable position and we looked at Jonah's rejection of God. But now let's look at God's pursuit of Jonah. Starting at verse 4, But the Lord hurled a great storm, or a great wind, upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. This is no normal storm. This is not a slight wind. This is not some breakers. Okay, This is a violent Storm, it's abnormally violent. And it says that God is the one who hurled it on him. Love that description. Then it says the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was on the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. I love that phrase. (laughs) What do you mean, you sleeper? (laughs) In the vernacular today, it might sound like, What in Sam Hill are you doing? Or, What are you thinking? What are you doing sleeping down here when we are fighting for our lives? It makes you think of Jesus and the disciples, doesn't it? They're on the boat on the Sea of Galilee during the storm. And 
Jesus is fast asleep in the stern of the ship, and they say, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? This captain in Jonah's story had this same panicked reaction. Why are you sleeping? Don't you care? I don't think Jonah did. I don't think Jonah cared. Jonah was indifferent. I don't think he cared if he lived or died. Frankly, I think he even preferred that he might die rather than having to go to Nineveh and do what God was asking him to do. And that's why it says he could fall fast asleep. He just didn't care. Didn't care. Jonah slept, or Jesus slept, excuse me, during that incident in the Sea of Galilee. Jesus slept because he trusted the Father and was acting according to the Father's will. But this is different. Jonah is asleep because he's running from God's will and preferred to die rather than obey it. What a hard heart. Going on, starting at verse 7, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country? And, what are you, uh, what, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. We don't know really what casting lots was. Nobody really knows what it actually was. It was a very common thing. We see it in the scriptures a lot, and it's never prohibited in Jewish law. But God causes these lots to fall on the guilty party here. (laughs) And Jonah's that guilty party. Verse 10, Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Notice here for a second that Jonah would rather die than warn these Gentiles in Nineveh. But these Gentiles here on this boat would rather risk their lives trying to row to shore than take and throw Jonah overboard. You notice that? What a sad commentary. They kept rowing hard, trying to avoid tossing him into the water. But Jonah, simultaneously, he refused God because God wanted him to warn Gentiles. Verse 14, Therefore they called out to their Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. They learned a lot about God, didn't they? But bam, the storm stops. Can you imagine? That horrific storm, and then pow, it's done. As soon as Jonah's overboard. I love this. It says, the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. It says when the storm hit, when the storm started and it hit the ship and it started tearing the ship up, it says the men were afraid. But when God stopped the storm, they were exceedingly afraid. The same thing happens to the disciples in that story we talked about. Jesus gets up from his nap in the boat and he calms the storm just like that by the power of his word. He stops it. And it says they also went from afraid to exceedingly afraid. John MacArthur once put it this way, 
um, in reference to the disciples in this case. He, he said something to this effect. It's one thing to have a storm threaten your boat. It's another thing entirely to have God in your boat. This is what I love about this entire scene in Jonah. Despite Jonah's hard-hearted rebellion, God is using him and his rebellion as a testimony to these men, these Gentiles. Jonah even testifies about God in this passage, doesn't he? He says, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. These sailors knew that Jonah was fleeing the Lord. They knew he was in rebellion against God, the God of heaven. And they even testify about who he is. They also witnessed this undeniable power of God within this mega storm and in the sudden halting of that storm as soon as Jonah was overboard. They made the connection. And guys, I don't think their false gods ever did something like this. I don't think they ever witnessed something of that nature. Of course not. They're just made up. What's their reaction? Verse 16 The men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. These guys feared God. They worshipped Him. They dedicated themselves to Him. What an amazing grace that God would use even a rebellious servant such as Jonah to bring the fear of the Lord to an unbeliever. kind of takes the self-pride out of any ministry work, doesn't it? That God really ultimately works in spite of us, not ultimately because of us. He does use us, and that's a great honor. But it's God who changes the heart. But more back to the main point, God is also pursuing Jonah here, guys. He's pursuing him. Notice how God is ordaining all these events. God hurls the storm. God created the panic in the sailors. God guided the lot so it fell on Jonah. God uses the storm and the testimony of Jonah to get him overboard. And finally, in verse 17, it says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I think we tend to think of God hurling a storm as just being a mean God. That's mean. Or a fish. Kind of a God would put a guy in a fish. (laughs) I mean, come on. Have you ever thought that through? What that? Think about that for a second. Being in a fish. I mean, I don't like being in confined areas. Maybe I'm partly claustrophobic. But I can't imagine being in that environment, pitch black, sitting in the gastric juices, stewing. Got a piece of seaweed right here. I mean, it's just, can you imagine being in that environment for three days? I can't imagine that. But I can tell you what kind of God would do such a thing. A God of mercy. A God of mercy would do this. A loving and gracious God did this. God loves Jonah and is doing what it takes to purge him of his sinful pride and his rebellious heart. God is doing what it takes. God had every right to destroy Jonah. He could have taken his life. He could have done something really horrific and killed him. He he deserved to be incinerated. Again, Jonah was a great representation of Israel. They were also rebellious and refused to obey God, didn't they? God often chastened them, just as we were talking about, using nations around them or using famine or whatever it took. But they were also rebellious and refused to obey God, and God chastened them repeatedly. He demonstrated his loving mercy to them, and he continued to provide for them and tried to bring them back. It was God's desire that the same mercies be manifest to these Gentiles in Nineveh. He wanted the world to see that he was a merciful God. 
And he wanted Jonah to warn these Assyrians. And we'll see this more in the coming weeks. He also wanted Jonah to be a witness to these pagan sailors. God's eye of mercy is always towards those who do not deserve it. Otherwise, it's not mercy. God's merciful to us. We all fight God's will at one point or another every day. We don't want it. We want our own way to our own demise. Some give in to rebellion at a deeper level when they face hard life situations. Our rebellion goes even deeper in those instances. Instead of trusting God or instead of submitting to what his word demands of his children, we run to a way of our own design thinking that that's the way out. And we sail away in our own ship to get away. But we are truly his. And if we are, he will chasten us for our good and bring us back to a place of joyful submission to him. Some quick concluding thoughts to ponder. The question, do you realize what a blessed and privileged position you have in Christ? Do you cherish that? We need to understand that more. That's why we constantly talk about it. It's constantly the topic. It's constantly in our music. In faith, we should delight in being his possession, to be his people, set apart for his glory. We should rejoice in that. It should be our delight to be servants of the Lord. We are eternally his to delight in him and enjoy him. There's no greater honor than that. We should cherish who we are in Christ. And here's another question. Do you see areas of your life in which you resist the word of the Lord and you're fleeing from God? Our tendency is to push God's word, isn't it? To get what we want rather than toward looking at what gives God the greater honor. What elevates Christ more? The tendency is to try to push the word and say, well, it doesn't totally actually forbid this, so I'm going to do it because it's what I want. Obedience sometimes becomes inconvenient when it presents uh, or prevents us from getting the things that we want. Sometimes we, we think... Uh, there's a better way we can alleviate our discomfort if we just do things a little differently than what God spells out in his word. We want to cave, cave into things. These things are all an issue of the heart, just as it was with Jonah. It begins in the heart. What is it we desire? As his children, it should be our greatest desire to trust him and obey him in all things. All of this is temporal. But it's those difficult situations in life that often expose where our heart is. What it is that we desire the most. But God will never ask of us what we are incapable of handling or that he is incapable of supplying for us so that we can bear it and deal with it. A third question. Do you realize just how loving and merciful God has been and always has been and always will be toward you? How loving and merciful he is. One of our greatest benefits is to grow in our knowledge of our holy God, to understand his magnificence. We talked about this in Sunday school. to see his perfections, to see his power, and to realize that we really deserve nothing from him. But to also see his holiness displayed in his loving mercy, mercy that has been poured over us in Christ, purifying us, making us true children of God and servants of Christ. We delight in him. Our sure gratefulness should make us great worshipers. Part of what we're doing here every day, everything that we're doing here 
at church is all part of our adoration, our worship. It should also make us quick to trust and obey him, to understand his mercies. He is not a a God who plays tricks. One last question. Do you struggle with loving those who are regarded as an enemy who mistreat you? Do you struggle to love these people? As Pastor Josh demonstrated last week, we are no more like God than when we love those who hate us in return because that's what God did with each one of us. While we hated him, he loved us. And he bore our sin. What an amazing God of love who saves us, elevates us, chastens us, for our benefit, and demonstrates his loving mercy towards us in every way, always bringing us back. What an amazing God. So, Father, we thank you for the example that we see in the book of Jonah. We thank you for how you have demonstrated who you are in this text. And at the same time, you expose to us who we are. Lord, I pray that you would soften our proud hearts and open our blind eyes so that we can see our own rebellion and our hard-heartedness. We can see your goodness and your provision and your wisdom. Teach us to trust you. Teach us to see your glory. Help us to be those who delight in what you have done for us and to us to rejoice in that, to live for that. And Lord, help us to be those who act like you by loving those who are not easy to love. We thank you for your loving mercies towards us in Christ, and we pray this in Christ's name.